The greatest fear on children's church Sundays is that I am going to get trucked over by a kid or I'm going to truck a kid. So I'm glad I took one last glance. You know, when you're at an intersection, you got to look left and right and then left again. Well, I'm trying to practice that with uh, the children exiting. Uh, so as we come into the Christmas time and um, as we're preparing for that, you know, we're just kind of talking about what is it like to live under the fall, right? What is it like to live where Christmas isn't fully raining yet. And so here's some of the things we came up with. The thought, can I keep all these plates spinning? Can I keep everything going in my life that has to keep going without letting anything fall to the ground? Everything's getting a lot more expensive this year. And I'm already living on the margins, and now there's no margins left, and there's this life on the very edge all the time. Marriage is good. Well, marriage is fine. We're doing all right. But something's missing. It's not everything that we thought it would be. And I'm almost certain I'm failing with the kids all the time. And so you think about God, and like the last time I would describe myself as being intimate with God, man, I don't even know that I could say when that was last. God's pretty distant these days. And if I'm really honest with myself, I don't much blame him. There's a constant sense, this nagging thought in the back of my mind all the time, you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. You're not doing good enough. You're letting people down. You're failing. It's not enough. It's not enough. But the world just spins so fast and there's no way to slow it down that I just keep going. I just keep trying to catch up. Disappointments? Yeah, I got a big pile of those. Regrets? Yes. So I've just decided I'll be a little bit resigned. If I don't expect too much, I can't be disappointed too much either. And so what is it about Christmas that brings real hope to the real world where all of us live? Now, whether all of that is you, certainly some of those portions are things that you struggle with, things that eat at the back of your mind, things that weigh you down. Is there anything about Christmas that's strong enough to be hopeful in the real world? And you've probably tried Christmas traditions, and they didn't quite do it. It kind of loses a little of the magic each year that passes by. Maybe you tried Santa Claus. Well, that probably didn't work out too well either. Or the Christmas spirit. If I just get the Christmas spirit, things are going to be okay. And it didn't work out. So now you're left with, I get two and a half days off of work. Because that's all the boss will let me have. And maybe just some time off. That's going to fix it. Maybe the perfect present. That's going to fix it, but you know it won't. Hadn't you gotten the present, and now you don't even remember what it was last year? Haven't you had the few days off, and you kind of came back more tired than you left? Haven't you had the nostalgia of Christmas, and it didn't quite hold up because some Christmases are just outright painful? There's got to be something more. So what can give hope for the real world? God broke into history in his son Jesus Christ 
God with us, Emmanuel. And that's the only thing that's resilient enough to face the world without resignation, face the world without jadedness, face the world without bitterness, face it with fresh hope. Because God broke into his world. He became one of us. And he's with us. So that's the kind of thing about Christmas that can bring real hope. And so we take these few weeks every year and we just kind of try to pause for a minute. Try to give you a couple of hours of sanity and calm and quiet in the swirling thing that is the Christmas season. And just put Jesus in front of us as clearly as we can. Put Jesus in front of us so that that's what we're grasping hold of before we make the sprint of the next few weeks. And so today we'll be in Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to be looking way back at the start. One of the places in the Old Testament, not the only one, where Christmas was promised to us. And the features of Isaiah 9 that really stood out to me this time as I was studying it is you have a very clear picture of what life is like under the fall. What life is like where Jesus isn't actively reigning at the time. What life is like if Jesus hadn't come at all. And then we get on the other side, what difference does it make that Christmas has come? What difference does it make that God did break into this world? What difference does it make that that God has become one of us? So that's the two things I want us to be listening for as we we go through the text. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot and of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Over the house, or on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth... And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. So, Father, too many days feel like gloom. Too many days feel like anguish. Too many days do we feel dismissed and invisible and discarded. And yet light has come. And light has shone in our hearts. And light has shown us the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so there is hope. Oh, I pray that Christ would be clearer this morning than he was before we started. I pray that a bright, shining Jesus with us would be so consuming 
that these other nagging, these other struggling, these other failings, these other depressing, these other sad things might drive the dark away. Lord, I pray for that for my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray for that for myself, that a clearer picture of Jesus would give us hope, would give me hope, so that this Christmas season wouldn't just pass. It would settle in our hearts. God, it would settle in my heart that worship would be rekindled. Pray for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Christmas collides with our experience of the fall. Christmas collides with our experience of the fall. The first part of our experience, darkness pervades the world, but Christmas brings light. Darkness pervades the world, but Christmas brings life. I was sitting a couple of weeks ago kind of thinking through these things, and I was thinking about an image, and, it, and I looked out the window, and it was, oh, that's it. Right. Winter days are a great analogy of life under the fall. Right. You look outside, and it's not sunlight and bright and a little bit of vitamin D to make me feel infused with life. I look out, and there's clouds that are sitting just about you know, eight feet high right over the top of my head, and the light's all diffused, and everything looks dreary and dead and dormant and cold. And, and, and it's just like there's the stifling clouds that feel just overhead level. And then, come 5 o'clock, pitch black. And so, whether it's the normal walking through life and there's just kind of a cloud on it, or whether it got really dark and that season became pitch black, and you're just like, what time is it? Six o'clock, right? And I was like, that is a great picture of what life under the fall is like. We've adjusted our eyes to where it almost feels normal to live in hazy, diffused sunlight. We've, we've adjusted our heart because enough darkness has fallen into our life that we just kind of are like expected or okay with it. But it's not the way it's supposed to be. So what is our experience of the fall like? What is, what is this idea of darkness like? Well, it's so pervasive, it's hard to explain. Like, we cannot imagine a day without sin clinging to us. We can't imagine a day without temptations drawing us in one way or another. We can't imagine a day where everything is perfect and just the way it's supposed to be without any mess-ups. Now, I can imagine amazing picnics, but then a rain cloud shows up in my imagination, Right? Everything is tinged by it. And so whether it's out there and it's nobody's fault, nobody can control it except for a sovereign Lord who's forming something in us and preparing us for glory. Like, what's my experience like of the fall? It's Thanksgiving break. I'm going to get days off. Stomach bug, right? It's nobody's fault. It's disease-ridden worlds. Or much, much worse than that. Like, you know, it's... It's this Christmas, and I know mom's been slipping just a little, but this time it's dementia. Cancer has been written over the top of so many of our Christmases, right? And it's nobody's fault. Nobody did anything. It's life in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be, but it's God making us for the world that will be the way it's supposed to be one day, right? Or what's life like under the fall? There's people all over the place. There's people that are selfish and bump up against our lives. There are people that are rude and they bump up against our lives. There are people that, that 
intentionally sin against us, there's a marriage that's like, it's, it's just friction or distant. We don't rub up against anymore because we, each other because we just don't even, we're just not even that close enough to rub up against each other anymore. There's kids. When they're little and strong-willed and defiant, or they get older, and they can break our hearts in much bigger ways than a sassy, they don't want to wear that today way. And so our relationships get broken. Our relationships can leave us empty. Our relationships can break our hearts. And sometimes they mean it. Sometimes people betray us and hurt us in evil, profound ways. There's abuse that enters our life from other people. What's life like under the fall? There's people there. What's life like under the fall? Man, there is a darkness that's much, much worse than those. There's one that sits inside my heart, and my flesh wars against the spirit in my life. My flesh does not want the things of God in my life. My flesh and the spirit collide with each other and they're at war with each other. Why? Because their desires are so opposite of each other. And so out comes my selfishness. I don't want to be evil. I just worked really hard and I deserve an uninterrupted night of peace. I don't want to be evil. I worked so hard. Me time. I don't want blatant evil, but man, it's been a long semester and I just finished finals. It's about me for a few weeks. I don't want to be evil. I don't want anything bad, but gosh, I sure do love talking about people, right? I, I was thinking about a verse this week uh, that came to mind. Like there's, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And so I was meditating on that and I was like, I've always thought about that verse. I'm like, yeah, people are bad. And they are, right? Total depravity. It's a real thing. And if you don't believe it, watch a two-year-old for a while. If you don't believe it, go live life and just see how people treat each other. Turn on the news. Depravity. But what is, as I was meditating on it this time, what I realized, this verse isn't talking about people that just want to go do blatant evil all over the place without any restraint. This verse is talking about people like you and me. I just want it my way on my timetable. I just want to do what I want to do and I don't really care how it rubs up against anyone else. I want to live life my way with no real reference to God. And you know what that produces? A little cut of death after a little cut of death after a little cut of death. What's life like under the fall? It's out there, it's people, and man, the biggest thing about it's in here. It's in here corrupting everything lashing out at people, abrasive with people, distant from people, embittered. It's right in here, proud. Why didn't they recognize me? Why didn't they notice me? Why did I get passed over? I'm better. I'm the best. It's just simple selfishness. Darkness pervades the world, but Christmas brings light. Let's look at the text as we, as we jump in. Isaiah is probably one of the prophetically speaking, one of the the most massive low points in the nation of Israel. He he prosecutes a crushing case against the nation of Israel. And by the time we get here, eight chapters of God's justified judgment on them and coming judgment on them. And it is going to be violent and it's going to be total and it's going to be all-encompassing. And so he's prosecuting the case of their rightful judgment. 
And all the way through that, he's doing it, but there's these little glimmers. God, God always inserts hope into his judgment with his people. Right? And so we get to chapter 7, and I think probably the worst king in the nation of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, the worst king possibly only beat by Manasseh, but his name was Ahaz. And, and we'll probably talk about him a little bit more next week. But Ahaz was evil, like, defined. He burnt his child in the fire as an offering to the false god. He was only one of only two of the kings of the southern kingdom that did that. And yet, as the northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria, God comes to him while the army is on the steps. He comes to him and he says, this ain't going to happen to you yet. I'll give you a sign. Ask me any sign, the biggest sign you can think of. I'll give it to you. And Ahaz is probably smart for one time in his life. He's like, I ain't mm -mm, not touching that. And God inserts his sign into it. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. And you'll call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew interprets that for us. Gentiles who don't know. That means God's with, God with us. And so that brings us, and he prosecutes the case, and then we come to Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, we get this break of promise that comes into it as he describes the fall. And, and look at it as he starts out. There's four words that he uses to describe life under the fall. And the first one is gloom. Life has a mist and a cloud that sits right over the top of it. That's gloom, right? We would go out there. I don't know what it's like right now, but we go out there, and let's say it's cloudy, and we're like, oh, it's a gloomy day. It's when the clouds sit low and rest over the top of life. What is gloom like for us? It's when a cloud sits over the top of our souls, and it's just like there's a mist or a fog that we're operating in. Gloom. What is it like to experience the fall? A thick cloud sits over our soul all the time. And then he talks about anguish, the second word, anguish. Anguish is the idea of a severe emotional pain. And it's not like a stabbing pain where you just got hit with a sword. Some of us would prefer that. It is a settled pain within the, within the emotional life of a person. It's anguish. And so I've got this mist of cloud that sits over my life. And at times it just stabs through with the sharp emotional pain. Life under the fall. Third word, contempt. To be thought little of, to be despised, to be easily dismissed. You're just held in contempt. You're not worth being around people like us anymore. You might put it this way. I just feel invisible and I feel alone. What is the experience of the fall like? Contempt. People dismiss me. People don't notice me. People don't care about me. I'm on my own. And I'm thought little of. Maybe worse than being thought little of, I'm not even thought about. This is life under the fall. And then the fourth word that I believe is an umbrella, all-encompassing word, because we then enter into the poetic section. If you notice in most of your Bibles, the text type changes. So now we're getting into a prophecy or, or, or lyrical language. And so... How, is, how are we going to wrap up this idea of contempt and anguish and, and gloom? How do, we, how do we capture that in one idea? Darkness. 
darkness, right? And so darkness is the experience of the fall. It is a lack of ability to see with clarity. It is a, it is a condition of the world around us where our eyes have adjusted to darkness, like darkness is normal, but God says light is normal because he's a God of light, and Jesus is the light of the world. Like light's the way it's supposed to be, but Darkness is what defines us. And so all the things that diverge from what God is like and diverge from like life and truth and purity and holiness, it's darkness. And so how do we describe the land that he's talking about in this point? Darkness. Great darkness. Deep darkness. Impenetrable darkness. And that's their experience. Right? And, and again... Right? There's a way that seems right in a man, but the end thereof is death. And, and, and so you might think, oh, darkness. They must just be running around like hatcheting people up and killing people and, and, and beating up old ladies and stealing their purses. Like that must be what it's like. No, it looks like a perfectly normal town doing perfectly normal stuff with no reference to God at all. Right? This, this land up there is dark. Living just like you and me. Trying to raise a family. Living just like you and me. Trying to get through their trade or their craft or their education, just like you and me. Doing everyday stuff like going to work. But darkness. There's a way that seems right to people. How normal to you is it that, you know, I just want, like, let's say I look at the people around me. They don't even go to church, those people. And I notice because when I go to church, they're not leaving for church. And I just look at them and I think, I don't want everything they have because, you know, they're lost. But it'd be nice to have like 75% of the stuff they have, right? It's so normal to just want the level of the people around me when it comes to stuff. And I get it, right? My truck is sitting in the shop with 186,000 miles about to blow up. It's like, why me, God? I'm trying to serve you. I don't want a new car. I just want to drive this till the wheels fall off. Then they're not supposed to fall off yet. While I drive out of my neighborhood with nobody stirring on a church day, and it's new car after new car after new car. Come on, God, what's going on here? There's a way that seems right to me. It's so normal to just want what everybody else has. And maybe not even as much as they have. Right? It's, it's just so normal. I, I just want to travel like everybody else travels. Have you rented a hotel room lately? I mean, you're staying at the Roach Motel for 150 bucks. It's pretty gross. Right? And so, but I just want to travel a little bit and get away. God, I just decompress so easy when I travel. I just want to travel and have the experiences everybody on Instagram has. Or I just want to travel because I need to relax and find life out there somewhere away from me. But I go with me. And it's just so normal to think that's going to give me life. And church will be here when I get back. Not a big deal, right? It's just so normal to deserve you time at the end of the day. And so, whatever it takes to get those kids down, however loud you have to be, whatever it takes to keep your wife from yammering about something, I know how to throw a good fit, and we won't have to talk for the rest of the night. It's just so normal to want to talk about other people, right? But there's a way that seems right to me, and what I do in the process is I just cut I just make little cut after little cut in my relationships and little cut after little cut in my soul. Or to use the language of Galatians, I just take little bites. It's not a big one. It wasn't even that bad. What I wanted was good. What I want is what everybody else wants. Bite 
bite, bite. And Galatians warns us, you be careful because your relationships and your soul are going to get consumed in all the biting that you're doing. Darkness defines the fall. Well, who does darkness befall? And so it's talking about a very specific area in the nation of Israel. But I think that's example of all. It's just the promise is coming to this area. That's why it's focused on it. And so it's Galilee of the nations. It's the northern tip of Israel. And so they're the first people that get taken over when an army comes through to take over Israel. They're the very first ones to go out. In fact, when, when uh, the northern kingdom was, was conquered, they're all taken out. And then they throw Gentiles in there to mix the, the races so that there's no ethnic identity of the Israelites anymore. There's no, there's no Jewish identity anymore. And so it was so pervasive. And that is a, a spiritual combination. I'm not talking about like an ethnic it's a spiritual separation that people are supposed to have, but they're too mingled in to have the spiritual separation anymore. And so it had become so pervasive that they're actually called Galilee of the Gentiles. Right? That that's how they had become known by the time uh, Isaiah, or, or what's going to happen by the time the prophecies of Isaiah unfold. Is they're going to be so mixed in with the nations that they no longer have their own identity. But what changes? In all this gloom and all this anguish, and it's pretty depressing for a Christmas sermon, isn't it? I'm sorry. It's just in the Bible. But it's a real world, isn't it? It's the kind of world that needs Jesus to break into it, isn't it? Because it's the kind of world you and I live in. It's the kind of world everybody that surrounds us is swallowed up by. And it gets to us too. And so what happens? What changes? And then look at the text. In the latter times, there's a time coming. He has made glorious this contemptible, unseen, rejected people. He's made them glorious. And then in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who are in the deepest darkness, on them has light shone. And so what happened to all this gloom? Light made its way through, like melting off of this fog as the sun comes up, and it's like bright again. Light has broken in to this gloom so that it's pierced. Light has broken into this anguish so that it can be saddled on top of a comforter who sticks near and draws with us, who, a God who is with us. Light has broken through so that all of our sin and inhumanity and the weight of it that's accumulated can be released, and we can walk in forgiveness of our Sins, light has shone in the darkness. But where did light shine? Precisely into the darkness we've been describing. Light broke into gloom. Light broke into anguish. Life broke into contempt and rejection. And light broke into darkness. That's exactly where he found them. And that's exactly where Christ Came And so what is it about Christmas that can say no gloom in a world that's still very gloomy? From the time Isaiah made these prophecies till Jesus' coming is hundreds of years. Like seven-ish, I think. When these things actually start to unfold, Israel is governed by the Roman government for a couple hundred more years. Then all blank breaks loose, and they have crusades, and they have Muslim invasions, and the Muslims trample all over Israel and, and, and basically invade and kick them out and kill them for a long time until the 1960s. Then they're reestablished as a sovereign nation. 
the, glo- the, the circumstances of Israel did not change. Right? The, 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 the day-to-day life and hardship of life under the fall didn't change. What did change? Light showed up. A person came on the scene, which we're going to see in the next couple of verses. That's the difference. And the same difference is true for you, and the same difference is true for us. How can we say no gloom when we look around and it's still awful hazy out there? How can we say no anguish, but man, I sure do feel it on the inside sometimes. How do we say no contempt when, when I feel very isolated or I feel unseen or I feel rejected and that didn't seem to go away? How can I say no contempt, glory? How can I say no darkness in a world that is so tragically dark? I can't go a day without seeing it and feeling it. How can I say that? And the only difference, the only difference thousands of years later from what they're talking about here is Christmas. A virgin-born son of God made God come to us and God is with us. A virgin-born son of God lived the life of perfection that we're demanded to live and absolutely cannot live. A virgin-born son of God was crucified on the cross for our sins, for our darkness, and for the sins of the world. And a virgin-born son of God rose from the dead because the Holy One could not see corruption. The only way for these passages to be true in the real world is a person. And as long as you're looking for a circumstance or a holiday or a change of the calendar or a gift to fill up the gloom of your life, you will live in just one more cycle of disappointment where if I don't expect much, then I won't be disappointed much. And the only way to hope in a real world is that the person who is the light of the world broke in. Second, life is heavy, but Christmas brings joyful freedom. Life is heavy, but Christmas brings joyful freedom. Look, there is no way around it. Life has a weight to it. And as you accumulate gray hairs, you accumulate weight. The more days you walk on the earth, the more weight you accumulate. It's like walking around life with a backpack on. And then you face a disappointment. You shove a brick in the backpack. And then you face a failure. Like, God, blew it. Brick. And then you face rejection, brick. Then you face, you know, some failure in life, brick. Then you face uh, disappointment, brick, and it just accumulates. And then it's like, I've got these regrets. God, I look back and I wish I had done some things different. I wish I had done some things slower. Brick, brick, brick. We We have a way of describing this, don't we? That guy looks like he's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. But we all have the backpack, don't we? And it just keeps adding up, and it just keeps piling up, and the weight just carries. It just makes life that much harder. And there's no way to unload the backpack. There's no way to get all the disappointments, failures, and regrets out. And so I just keep going, and I just keep going, and I just keep going, and I just learn how to live with life under a weight. Only Christmas can unload a heavy life. Only Christmas 
can have Jesus reach into your backpack and say, redeemed, redeemed, forgiven, forgiven, restored, restored. And those couple that are left in there because they're not going away on the side of heaven, he'll just say, let me carry that for you. Only Christmas can unload the weight of our lives. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, people from this passage with a burden of yoke upon them. Come to me, the people in this passage with a rod of oppression on them. Come to me, people weighed down by life. And I'll take that off of you and I'll just put my yoke on you. I'll put my burden on you instead. But here's the difference. Mine's easy. Mine's light. And when you tug on it all day long, you'll find rest for your souls. Only Jesus can unweigh, unload the heaviness of our life. And that's exactly what he offers. Come to me. Come to me. And I'll put rest in your soul. Let's look at the text as he continues on. So I want you to notice a big difference between one and two. And it's found in the simple word you. Look at this. Verse three, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest. And then at the end of verse, I think it's four, my eyes are fuzzy. You have broken on the day of Midian. What is the difference between gloom, contempt, anguish, darkness, and verse three? God has broken into the scene and is active. What's the difference? No physical circumstances. What's the difference? God showed up. God went to work in the lives of his people. Now, we're going to find out more of the definition of that in just a few verses. And we can look back in chapter 7 and we can find some of what that means. What does it mean that you showed up? It means Emmanuel. God's not just up there and in a temple. God's coming to you. God's with you. And so you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. We're starting to get the light breaking into the darkness defined for us, and it's defined for us as God showing up and God going to work. And then the the results of this are described for us in two different images. Image one, like the multiplied joy. Image one, it's like joy when the harvest comes in. Right? And so in, a, in an agricultural society, my livelihood and my survival itself depends on those crops turning from a little bitty seed into a produce of some sort. And if it comes in, the whole town celebrates. They're on the same calendar as I am. And if it doesn't come in, things get really scary quick. You and your life have never experienced a thing called a famine because you have grocery stores. I have never experienced a thing called a drought because I turn on my faucet, and even if I'm not allowed to wash my car certain days of the week, oh my, I turn on a faucet and water comes out. And that's not the world that most people have lived in throughout history. Most people have lived in this world, and they plant this little bitty seed, and it's like faith. If it grows, we live another year. And so they water it the best they can water it through their, their methods that they had to kind of shift water everywhere. And they fertilize it to the degree they can fertilize it. And it's like they have done all they can do for it to grow. And then it's faith. 
It's faith if God sends the rain or not at the right season. It's faith whether the crop has some health to it. It's faith whether or not a blight comes across it and wipes out a lot of, of my possibilities. And so around this time when the harvest comes in, it's only safe when it comes in. My livelihood and my security are only there when it comes in. And so when these cultures, or, or when the Israel people, when they would gather in the harvest, they threw a massive party. Joy burst out all over town because, hey, we get to live another year. Hey, we get to trade with something for another year. And that's the kind of joy when God's present and active in a situation. And then the other one is, it's the kind of joy that happens when uh, you, you divide the spoil. And so again, the chances of Georgia being invaded in your lifetime are like zero. We're Georgia. We all got guns anyhow. Come on. Right? That's, why, that's why I just don't believe the Walking Dead could be set in Georgia. There are far more guns in our houses than zombies out there that could take bullets. So, Sorry, that's a whole different story. <laughs> but... The constant reality of the ancient world was tribalism, always fighting for position, always taking over each other, always you know, seeing who will serve who and who will bear the tribute burden of paying who. And so the reality of going to war, because if you don't win this one, your family pays the price, was the constant reality. And so you go out to defend your home, you go out to defend your town, you go out to def- defend your area of the world, And losing means we go into captivity. Winning means that we get to divide the spoils. And so how do you describe the joy of God being on the scene and God being active? It's like those who divide the spoil. They won. Nobody's coming for their families anymore. And so they've multiplied the nation. They've divided the spoil. and, And then he gives these two reasons. Actually, he gives three reasons. If you notice in, I don't know what verse it is. Four begins all these verses. And so, verse four, four. Verse five, four. Verse six, four. This is reasons for their joy. And the first two reasons, reason number one for their joy is the yoke of his burden and the rod of his oppressor has been broken off. Just like the day of Midian. Midian was one of those tribes that it was always taking over Israel in the judges' time. They kept blowing it and God let them be taken over. And so, God coming, sending a new judge to break Midian off of the back of the people, right? That's, that's the image. And so what has happened? What, what has he done that brings joy? He's broken weights off. He's broken yokes. He's broken enslaving harnesses off of his people. And he's broken oppression, the rod of the oppressor, off of his people. Now, can you imagine, like, you're barely scraping by, hoping the harvest comes in. If the harvest comes in, I just get to live. But then another country comes in, they're like, but we'll take 10%. That'll just be ours. Now you figure out how to do with the rest. You're like, I couldn't do with the 90%. How am I supposed to do that? But we have to pay tribute. And when he breaks that oppression off, what weight lifts and what joy comes in? But you know your greatest oppression has nothing to do with an enemy tribe that may invade. It has nothing to do with the politics of the day. It has nothing to do with anything that's surrounding you. The clear oppression that Christmas meant to break. Now, there will be a second Christmas, by the way. And that's when things get really good. 
but for now it's broken into because what we didn't need was a deliverance of our circumstances. We needed a deliverance from ourselves. And he's broken the oppression of sin. You know, Romans 6 says that we are enslaved to sin. And so we live apart from Christmas and apart from Christ, enslaved by sin. And it is a cruel taskmaster. And it demands more. And it demands more. And it satisfies less. And it satisfies less. And it is enslaving to us. And Christmas 1 came to break the oppression of sin from life, to break our enslavement to sin so that we could be set free. Now, Christmas 2 is going to break the oppression of everything else. It's going to get really good. So, as we kind of continue to move on, life is really mundane. Have you noticed that? It's a lot of getting up and going to sleep and feeling like the same thing just happened that's about to happen the next day. But in the middle of that mundane, man, there's just some crushing pain that breaks into it sometimes. And all the things that we've already talked about. And then there's some of these amazing moments of joy that if you could just capture them in a bottle, because you know it's not going to be that way forever. But man, there's those moments that break in and you get to experience them. So what in the world, how, how do we live with peace? Is peace possible? Meaning is wholeness and fullness possible? In a world of the mundane, in a world where pain breaks in so often, yeah, but it's not dependent on a special event or circumstance. It's not dependent on the next thing. It's not dependent on the next whatever. It's God is present and God is working. In fact, God is living in the midst of you. He's inside of you by his Holy Spirit. Third step. Third step. The world entangles us in every way, but Christmas brings a new king and a new kingdom. The world entangles us in every way, but Christmas brings a new king and a new kingdom. And so the fall is evident in point one. Gloom, darkness, contempt. The fall is evident in point two, oppression and weight. The fall is implied in, the next, in, in point three. The world wants you, right? The, the, the seeds of the, the parable of the sower, right? There's some that don't have any soil and they grow up and then life gets hard. And, and, and riches and the things of the world pull them away. The parable in the, in the thorns, like they, they're, they're, they grow up in the thorns, but the world chokes them out. There's a guy named Demas that's kind of greeted in the Colossians. Well, a few books later, Paul's like, Demas fell in love with the present world, and he left us. The world is choking. The world wants to get a hold of us. The world is always clamoring for us. And, and you get it, right? I see the world. I see my kids need taken care of. I see the job I have to go to today. I see the boss that is making life really hard on me. I see the professor that is unreasonable and not really good at his job. I see the challenges of this life, and I feel them. And so my heart just gets grabbed by the world and pulled to the world and attaches to the world, and I get it. You get it. But there's another world. There's another kingdom that's operating right here and right now inside of us and right here and right now as the church that has broken into the world. But it's so hard to live like that's the reality, not this. And that's exactly what's being attacked in the final gift of Christmas is will the world on my heart, you know, to be friends with the world is to be an enemy of God. Will the world on my heart or will the kingdom 
breaking in. What is the last reason we have for joy? What is the unbeatable reason for joy at Christmas? The final four. I know I'm holding up three. I mean F-O-R. Four. Four. Unto us a child is born. Four. Unto us a son is given. What is the ultimate light coming into darkness? A son being born. What is the ultimate breaking of oppression with God on the scene? A son being born. What is the ultimate destroying of the oppression of your heart through sin? And one day, everything else, a son being born. And there's three words I'll use to describe him just to make it quick. He is divine. He is the divine son of God. And so you look at his names. What is he called? Wonderful counselor. Right? That he has authoritative wise that, un, that, that confounds the wisest men on earth. He speaks a better wisdom. That it has a teaching with authority over it. And people realize there's something different when Jesus speaks than when all these other smart guys speak. He's the wonderful counselor who speaks wis- words of wisdom and hope and encouragement and counsel to the real stuff of everybody's life. He's a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. God became flesh and dwelt among us. The virgin will bear Emmanuel, God with us. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. That is not in relationship to the Trinity. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That is in relationship to time. He is the eternal Father, right? He governs time, and then he is the Prince of Peace. What does it look like when Jesus reigns in a place? Peace. What does it feel like when Jesus reigns in a life? Peace. Peace would be the Hebrew word shalom. It's wholeness. It's well-being. The idea is everything's the way it's supposed to be. So when Jesus reigns in our lives fully, peace becomes our experience. Does that mean everything's the way it's supposed to be around us? No. Does it mean the brightest and the best and the most glorious things are the way they're supposed to be in here? Yes. With Jesus ruling and reigning over everything else in my life, with entrusting myself to the goodness and the sovereignty of a God who is taking everything and bringing the ultimate equation to good for those who love him. The one who's preparing for us a place that eye has not seen or ear heard and our minds can't even imagine. What he's prepared for us. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third word is royal. There's a kingdom involved here. And what is the kingdom like? Peace. You gotta imagine if the king is marked by peace and where he rules creates wholeness, takes broken things and puts them back together, then you gotta think the kingdom he makes ultimately is a kingdom of peace and it's a kingdom of righteousness. It's in a kingdom of justice, right? No longer will there be a two tiered justice system for the rich and the poor or the politically connected or the unpolitically connected. There will be one absolute standard of justice. It'll be justice. It'll be righteousness. It'll be eternal. And how certain is it? The fiery passion of God will bring to pass what has just been said. That's how certain it is. What can stand in the way of this kingdom coming? Anything that can stand before the passion of a sovereign God accomplishing his promise is that. But I don't think there's any. I know there's none. How certain is it the zeal of the Lord of hosts? And so how can the mundane, how can the painful, 
How can the broken, how can the gloomy, how can we live with hope in a world filled with that? And I'm going to experience it again if I keep living. And I'm going to experience it again if I keep living. And there'll be more regrets and more disappointments and more heartbreak and more sin. How can I keep going? Because God became flesh and he dwelt among us as a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father whose reign brings peace wherever it controls. A few practical things as we wrap up. What are some ways you've experienced the darkness of the fall? What are some ways you've experienced the darkness of the fall? And I want you to think of all the levels. It's easy for some of us to get real introspective. And God, what a jerk. What a bozo. How I blew it. What a, I'm a sinner. I'm a failure. I'm no good. Yeah, that's part of it, yeah. But how's the, how, how has darkness touched you? Think, think out there. How has darkness, where somebody we have loved deeply won't be? Darkness has touched our life. For some of us, there's going to be strained relationships around the table that just create the unease of how do I do this without breaking it further? Or we're going to be sitting around a table and we just know that there's diseases operating. How do we do this? Where have you experienced darkness? And here's what I want to say to you. God says he is near to the brokenhearted. He wants you to pour all of that out before him. He doesn't want you to pretend like everything's okay. He doesn't want you to pretend like you're unaffected by it. He wants it poured out before him. Before him being the key word. How have you experienced darkness out there? How have you experienced darkness in here? How have you experienced darkness from another person into your life in a way that's really hurt it? Second, how does Christmas reorient you in the face of sin and suffering? How does Christmas reorient you in the face of sin and suffering? How does Christmas say, yes, but God? Yes, but Jesus. Yes, but a redeemer who has come. Yes, but I have lived this world and faced the temptations you face, yet without sin. And so come as close as you are willing to come, and I will give you the grace to help in your time of need. Because the throne you come to is grace thrones. How does Christmas reorient you? How does Christmas allow you to see light when darkness is everywhere? How does Christmas allow you to see a sense of acceptance with God who welcomes you into his presence and if you are despised by everyone, you are not despised by him and his son? How does he say God sees you when you feel so unseen and invisible? How does Christmas reorient your sin and suffering? And then lastly, what about verses 6 and 7? most encourage you and why. This is a passage spoken to the darkest time of the nation to give them hope of what will be one day. And it's a passage spoken to us of what got started and will get finished one day. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, but it's so dark, I am the light of the world. And I walk around in so much darkness, you are the light of the world. More like the moon reflecting light than creating it, but you are the light of the world. And so let's go live with people seeing our good works in a way that glorifies our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we bow as those who feel so fully the fall. It's touched us. It's hurt us. It's disappointed us. 
but make us more so people who see Jesus, the true light that darkness could not overcome. Let us be a people that more see Jesus breaking off the oppression that sin has held over us. Let us more see Jesus, the one who offers us a yoke that's easy and a burden that's light. Let us more see Jesus who promises a rest for our souls that no amount of days off could ever give us. Let us see Jesus, a son, king, being born into the world and all of the hopes of the world resting on him. And he carried that hope to a cross for us. Let us see Jesus. It'll be enough. It'll be enough for whatever we have to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, Christmas number one is all about salvation and lostness. It's all about undoing the greatest need of your life, that you are separated from God by your sin. It is all about sin that will separate you from God eternally if you live that way forever. If you choose darkness forever. But it's all about God invading darkness to say, here is my son. He lived a sinless life. Here is my son. He died on the cross for your sins, for your sins, for your good religious sins, for your church going sins, for your religious family sins, for your raised in a country town sins, for the sins that separate you from God as much as any nation on earth is separated. Dying for your sins. And if you would turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you, he would delight to forgive you. He would delight to forgive you. And he would delight to welcome you into adoption to the Father as dearly loved sons. Have you done that? Don't trust your church background. Have you done that? Don't trust how good a person you are. Have you done that? What an awesome time in the missionary time of Christmas where God came to us for you to be invited to come to him. If that's something that needs to be happening in your life, if that's something the Holy Spirit's working on in your life, come, let's pray together. Or fill out the white sheet in your bulletin and let us talk to you more about that. But maybe... For you, you sit here and like all those other words of the passage today describe you, man, there's sin, and I feel it, and I hate it, and I did it again, and there's loss, and there's just this weight and cloud that's part of my life and experience, and you want to come to the God who has come near and just put it before him again for forgiveness. Put it before him again. Let him carry it with you. Put it before him again. He will hear your cries for help, and he'll put your tears in a bottle. It says, how do you need to respond? Let's stand together and sing, and you respond how the Lord is leading you.